Well, good morning to you, Berean Bible Church. It's a joy to see you this morning and to be with you. Pastor Eric does uh, wish you well and says that he is on solid ground again. It's not moving around and wobbling as on the ocean, so they're uh, ready and prepared to catch a flight and look to head back down this way here in the next bit. So just wanted to send his blessings to you. As Brother Rod had just read, in our world, you are either a child of God or you are powered by the flesh and you're a child of Satan. It is one or the other. The dichotomy is so clear. And I want, to, I want you to see this from Christ's perspective, and we'll see it in John 15. Turn there in your Bibles this morning to John 15. This is our passage for this morning, and it is a sobering text that we're going to be considering in John 15. We're going to be forced in John 15 to consider humanity, to consider the world, to consider anthropology, the study of man. Specifically, Jesus is going to turn what has been, as we've discussed over the course of the past month, a night of glory. He's going to turn it into a discussion of hate. In this glorious celebration on this night with his disciples, Jesus does need to introduce his disciples to hate, the hatred of the world. The disciples need to understand their relationship to the world. It's also as if we're understanding the believer's relationship to the world. And I would even say more specifically, we're talking about the elect's relationship to the world. Of greatest significance in this text this morning is the world's hatred of God's elect. The world is filled with hate. You know, even as I was studying to put this message together, had my head deep into the word and to many books on Friday, and it wasn't until Friday evening that I found out that there had been a shooting the other day in Florida. I'm sure that you've heard about this by now. There was a 40-year-old disgruntled city employee in the city of Virginia Beach, Florida, who entered the office building where he worked with several guns. He began firing on his co-workers, and in his rampage, he killed 12 employees. The gunman engaged four police officers in a firefight and was killed himself. And immediately, Virginia Beach asks why. Florida asks why. America, as a country, we ask why. Why are children now without their parent? Why are spouses not coming home? And why can't the madness of active shooters in our country end? There's a race to find out, was he black? Was he white? Was he Latino? Was he a Muslim or was he a Christian? Was he another Democrat on antidepressant medication? Or was he a right-wing, Trump-loving, racist, bigot, sexist, homophobe? The politicians quickly make their outrage known on Twitter, of course, first, and then through any social media outlet, they'll give a camera to their face so they can get airtime. The investigations will be underway, and they'll be underway for weeks. The news media will hound the story and the coverage of it for answers and to drive their ratings. This is the course of the world, and it is filled with hate. It is so sad. It is so cyclical, though, as well. You can pretty much guess before they even get to the microphone the comments that are going to come out of the politicians' mouths. And yet, which of them has clear answers and even helpful words at these times? Which politician understands the full scope of these issues? Which law enforcement agency is equipped to handle the hatred of humanity? What judge, mental institution, rehab program, or prescription medication will help to deal with hatred. Can you or they stop crazy? Can they stop hatred? Certainly you know that we have politicians who will try, don't you? They really believe that if you take guns away from law-abiding citizens, that you can end the madness and the insanity of the crazed and disgruntled among us. They believe that you can legislate morality. That's what they believe, that mankind loves to be packed down and heaped up with laws and is so quick and ready to obey them. Don't they pay attention to 3,000 years of God's history with Israel? If we, if we just pass more law, they think, then we can create a utopia, even a heaven on earth, and the sea levels will all level out and global warming will be gone and hate will be done away with forever. But they can never stop crazy or hate, can they? Why? What prevents the national political elite, 
all over the globe from coming up with a workable solution? The answer? They will only ever seek to constrain men physically. They know nothing about transforming men spiritually. The issue is humanity is broken. The world is filled with hate. Every human being is born spiritually dead because of your grandparents, Adam and Eve. And just like them, you and I once were as well. But it's so interesting, isn't it? Did you come in this room and experience joy this morning? Did you come and experience the love that Christ has in his church? Isn't it interesting that God has chosen us, believers in him, to join together in fellowship here at 10 a.m.? Why? To pray, to sing songs of praise to God, to teach our children to love God down the hallway, and to sit under the teaching of God's word here collectively? How can this happen? The answer is in John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, what did he say? You must be born again. You must be born again. Not of the flesh, because whatever was born of the flesh is flesh. But whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. The solution is only spiritual. It is only supernatural and only according to God's choosing. This morning we look at hate. And we need to see the dichotomy, the division, the distinction between the owners of hate and this community of love that we've been called into so that we can defeat hate and sorrow and grief, just like Jesus' 11 disciples did. And that's why he gave them this message on this night of glory. Read the text with me. We're going to be considering John 15, verses 18 to 25 today. But I want to begin our reading in 17 because of the sharp contrast that Jesus draws between these two verses. This will be the third time that Jesus has said this in 17 to them. I read with you from John 15, verse 17. Jesus says, this I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do to you for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this they have done to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. As we start our time this morning, I want to open up this context a little further for you to understand what's happening in this scene. I mentioned earlier that I call this the night of glory. Why is this the night of glory? Because that's what Jesus says in 13, 31, 32. He says this is the night of glory. Jesus is in Jerusalem with the disciples. It's Thursday night at Passover, and earlier, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer and the thief among the 12 disciples, left, and now Jesus is alone with the 11 disciples who are true and genuine believers, those who have been born again. These 11 disciples are filled with grief, sorrow, and fear. Why? Because tomorrow they're going to lose their Savior. Jesus needs to share with them on this night the hope and joy, and peace, and glory that he has prepared for them. Because in less than 12 hours, the Jews stirred on with hatred and madness. They will demand the execution of the perfect Son of God. Tomorrow, Jesus will be crucified. So this is the night of glory. It is a victory celebration before the crucifixion even happens. But why introduce such great hatred on a night of glory? What part does hate have in glory? It's unavoidable. Jesus has been teaching them about relationships, about identity. I think about identity a lot, especially when I talk to young kids, teenagers, 15, 18, 20, 21, 25. Do you know your identity? Where do you get your identity? Who 
are the influences in your life that teach you about identity, who you are. These men had Jesus teaching them. And in 15.5, Jesus tells them, I am the vine and you are the branches. In 15.15, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. And in 15.12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. But they also need to know how to relate to the world. And it would be helpful for them to even know how Jesus relates to the world. And so we can make two questions from their needs, which this text will help to address as we see the world's hatred being addressed. So the first question for our notes this morning will be, how do, the, how do believers relate to the world? How do believers hate, relate to the world? And our second question will be, how does Jesus relate to the world? These are our two questions. It'll serve as a simple outline for us as we walk through the text this morning. How do believers relate to the world? And how does Jesus relate to the world? This will help us to relate to the world and its hatred and not miss out on all the joy and love and peace that comes from being found in Christ. So let's look to our first question. How do believers relate to the world? We relate to the world in this way, by being subjected to the increasing hostility of the world. That's how we relate to the world. Let's look again at the text, and I want you to see in the text three phases of increasing hostility from the world directed to believers, which helps us to understand how we relate to the world. On this night of glory, Jesus says to the disciples, again in 18 through 20, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What then is phase one of increasing hostility toward believers? Hatred. Hatred. The word maseo in the Greek, it means to hate, to detest, and even to abhor. God has hatred, though. God has hatred. And so we understand that hatred occurs in the heart, but it is neither itself neither good nor bad. God's hatred we can find in Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, and down to 19, where, the, the, where the, uh, Solomon writes this. There are six things which the Lord hates, and yes, seven which, the, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. These seven things God hates. So we must understand a division and a distinction, a category, if you will, between righteous hatred and unrighteous hatred. Where do we see and where do we find unrighteous hatred in the Bible? You don't have to get very far into the book of Genesis to find unrighteous hatred in Genesis 3. Hatred of God is unrighteous hatred. Any form of rebellion, contempt, disrespect, or mutiny against God. The hatred of the world is focused on God's characteristics, His righteousness, His holiness, His perfection. The hatred of the world is fed by lies and it thrives on selfishness and pride and personal glory. And how are we to understand world in this context? Well, one commentary says the world refers to in this context, the evil fallen world system comprised of unregenerate people and controlled by Satan. In summary, phase one of increasing hostility toward believers is a general heart level hatred first for God and then toward all who belong to God. And to be abundantly clear, yesterday's gunmen, tomorrow's gunmen, last year's gunmen, they are all wicked, evil men who God hates. And who hate God. God hates the one who sheds innocent blood. We saw this in Proverbs 6. Why? You need to ask this question. You know fundamentally, anthropology. You need to know that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. We bear God's image. You have intrinsic value in you today. I can say that I love you today because you bear on you the image of God. And it's important to him as well. 
We bear his image. And so murder of a human being is a direct assault on God's character and God's own righteousness. And I find it absolutely amazing. The irony of the talking heads in the media and the political class. Yesterday, they denounced the gunman for murdering innocent people. But just the day before, they were denouncing the fetal heartbeat bill in Georgia, which seeks to save the life of the innocent and unborn, even the pregnant women in Georgia and their babies. Their hypocrisy points to an identity that matches the gunman. Do you see the similarity? They are all murderers. They all hate the world and are haters of the world and world haters themselves, filled with unrighteous hatred. You know, 1 John 3.15 says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Murder is part of our context this morning. I need you to see that. Look at the Bible there. John 16 verse 2. There are actually five phases of increasing hostility. Our text only covers three of them. The chapter divisions don't really help you here. Murder is the final phase of hostility of the world. We read this in 16 verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. What is phase four in the increasing hostility toward believers? Becoming outcasts. And what is phase five? It is murder. Murder is part of these phases. But let's look back and we need to discuss phases two and three. What are phases two and three of increasing hostility by the world toward believers? We see those next in the text. They come in a set of parallel if-then scenarios. And Jesus loves to speak of this if-then scenario, creating reflection in the minds of the disciples in this text. And so we see these if-then scenarios creating reflection. We see after hatred comes persecution, and along with persecution comes rejection. Rejection is seen in not keeping Jesus' words. They don't like the message. They refuse Jesus' message and our message. Persecution here is to pursue, to harass, or to follow. And we saw this earlier in the Gospel of John on several occasions, but in 516, after Jesus had healed the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda, it is said this in the text, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know, by this night of glory that Jesus is in with the 11 disciples, these disciples at this time, they're well acquainted with the harassing that Jesus has had to endure at the hands of the wicked of this world, particularly these Jewish leaders. In 7-1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. In 8-59, they picked up stones to throw at him. Again, in 10-31, they picked up stones again to throw at him. And after Lazarus was raised from the dead in 11-53, we read, so from that day, they planned together to kill him. How many times have these disciples seen firsthand the rejection by the Jews of all of the truth that Jesus was teaching and all of the miracles that he was performing. How many times? It is here in the night of glory that Jesus asks these disciples to remember that they have witnessed three phases of increasing hostility on Jesus. And they need to now know and let it sit at home in their hearts that just as it was done to the master, so too Will it be done to you, the slave? It is not a surprise, is it, to any one of us that the world loves its own? This is not a surprise. They're happy if you join them in their rebellion to God. But what they hate most is when they are confronted with righteous opposition to their deeds and their desires. Paul even commands this of believers in Ephesians 5.11 saying, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. And this is what the disciples must be all about for the course of the rest of their lives. Because they are not of this world, as verse 19 says, but they have been chosen out of it. D.A. Carson says, the purpose of this verse is to eliminate the surprise factor when persecution does break out. I agree with him 100%. Jesus wrote this to these disciples to eliminate the surprise factor. And I need to ask you now, Are you surprised at hatred, at persecution, at rejection? 
Is Christianity made to be sunshine and lollipops at the Pismo Pier forever? Is that Christianity? Are you supposed to be chasing your best life now as some Christian so-called pastors and authors might have you chase after? What brand of Christianity have you been sold on? If you remember last week, I discussed Christian pretenders, those who are branches in Christ that are gathered up and burned, Judas Iscariot being chief among them. Have you been sold on and living in pretend Christianity? Pretend Christianity that doesn't include the thought of hatred, persecution, and rejection. Christianity that allows for you to engage in the things of this world, fornication, adultery, lasciviousness, greed, lust, pride, drunkenness. Is that your brand of Christianity? I would hope that you would understand Christian persecution from the example that we have in Christ. First Peter chapter 2 says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What credit is that? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently and endure it, this, this finds favor with God. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It goes on to say in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This is the brand of Christianity that you need to be practicing. There's a man in Colorado who's been practicing this for many years. Have you heard of Jack Phillips and his cake shop, Masterpiece Cakes? He's a simple small business owner who only wants to work as unto the Lord, serving his local community. So when he was asked in 2012 to make a cake for a so-called same-sex marriage, which doesn't exist, he declined. And you know the story. There was a lawsuit filed against Jack for discrimination because you can't do that in our modern-day society. Jack lost this lawsuit in 2013. He appealed, however, to the Supreme Court and to the praise of God, at least for now, the Supreme Court saw the religious hatred expressed by the group called the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. I think about the irony of that. And they overturned the lower court's ruling, the Supreme Court did, in a 7-2 to vote. And this happened a year ago on Tuesday, June 4th, 2018. I want you also to consider this suffering in Christ from the from the headline that I saw earlier in the week on Fox News, my primary source for information. (laughs) Christian persecution is close to genocide levels, largely ignored due to political correctness. I'll read it again. This is the headline from this week. Christian persecution close to genocide levels, largely ignored due to political correctness. You see, the British Foreign Secretary asked for a report to be done, and they concluded that 80% of all religious persecution in the world is happening to Christians, 80%. The world is turning a blind eye to Christian persecution. They're allowing it to happen. It's just fine. Why all the hatred of Christianity? Why all the persecution and rejection? Jesus doesn't hesitate to give these disciples two reasons why. They're right there in your text. John 15, 21 says so clearly, but all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know the one who sent me. For my name's sake. What does this mean, for my name's sake? For my name's sake. It means for Jesus' reputation. It's the very reason why he came. He came for his own name's sake. It's for vindication of his words and his deeds done on earth. For vindication of his name, his character, his essence. This is why he came. This is what for his name means. Believers will be persecuted because we attest to the personhood and the deity of Jesus Christ. And the second reason further explains the first reason. They persecute because they don't believe. They don't know God. Do they know God? 
They know God. They know enough about God to have them reside in God's hell forever. What do they do with God? The information they have about God. Romans 1 says they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They don't know God because they say they don't know God. But they know Him, and they'll have a meeting with Him. Here we see the division between, so clearly, this division, this dividing line between human existence and the children of God, between believers and unbelievers. This dichotomy, this division, the regenerate, the unregenerate, the blessed, the wicked, the spirit-filled, the hate-filled. Jesus makes the division so clearly for us in the text. It's right here, verse 19. I chose you out of the world. The chosen and the world in the same verse. Two groups. The dichotomy. And I want you to think about this. I chose you out of the world. This, friends, is called election. Predestination. And it is one of three doctrines needed to defeat hate. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're going to defeat hate, you need to know three doctrinal truths that are going to come out of this text. This is the first one. I give it to you here. The others you'll just have to wait for. This is given by Jesus on the night of glory to the disciples. Why do they need to know about election? How does election hold you strong? When you have fear, when you have doubt, when you have worry, when you have sorrow, when you have grief, when trouble is on the horizon, when the Savior will die tomorrow, why do you need doctrine? I want you to turn back to Romans 8, where you were at earlier. You were in Romans 8, and I want to go right back there. What is election? Election is salvation from the world's system of hate. Election is God's choice from eternity past to place grace onto some while having no obligation whatsoever to give grace to anyone at all. Man's hatred of this doctrine, of this teaching of Scripture is palpable because it removes human boasting of any kind. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of human works so that no one may boast. And if you read along with me in Romans 8, just down further from where you were earlier, in Romans 8, 28 to 30, Paul says this to the Romans. We call this the golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, if you are worshiping God, in your heart today, in this place. If you are receiving spiritual food in this house, it is because God did a work in you that you could not stop from happening. He didn't ask you to believe in Him. He made you to believe in Him. You were once His enemy, and He made you His friend. Romans 3 says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. Inevitably, someone will though ask, inevitably, they will ask, well, why can't Jesus just save everyone and make them all believe? Why does God allow rebellion? And Paul felt this question coming and he gives you an answer. Look at Romans 9. Read with me from verse 19 to 23 and let's see if Paul can help us with an answer to this question. He says, you will say to me then in verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did. So he did so 
to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Wow. There's your answer. This is all about a glory plan. This is all about a glory plan because God is a glory hog. Nobody earns his glory. Nobody gets a slice of it. He won't allow it to happen. He does not give his glory to another. And your question, why can't Jesus just save everyone? That question puts you in judgment over God. It presumes you know the best way to get glory. And if that's the case, I would ask you, where's your Bible? Where are your prophets? Where's your temple? Where are your, where's your sacrificial death? Where are your evangelists at? How come you haven't been evangelizing everybody with your ways for all these thousands of years? This question, it presumes that God can't be glorified in his justice and wrath in the same way that he can be glorified in his grace and in his mercy. Do you see that? That thought right there, the idea that there's some difference in his glory given to him because of his justice and wrath, and difference between the glory given to him and his grace and mercy, that there's some glory difference between these two things with God, that thought divides the very essence and nature of God and is the foundational thought of idolatry. And if you persist in that thinking, this is my concern for you. If you persist in that thinking, my concern would be that you would go to hell for your rebellion against God and his plan to glorify himself. The elect of God are comforted by knowing the doctrine of election. It, need, it is so needful for our purposes of identity. And here's why. To know that we are in Christ. To know that it happened by his strength. That it didn't happen by your strength. Or your strength. Or your knowledge. That it didn't happen by your choice. Because I know how weak y'all are. I know how if you chose this way today, you'll eat some pizza tonight. It'll give you heartburn. You'll wake up tomorrow. You'll make a different choice about God. You'll have a different thought about God. You'll have a thought about the pleasures of the world. When some millionaire comes along and offers you to be his wife and spend all this time with him, you'll have different thoughts about God at that time. And you'll be able to set it aside if you chose him. Did you choose him or did he choose you? It is so comforting for us to know that we are chosen by God, that he's the one who's holding us fast, that he has always had us on his mind, and that he spoke and drew us into him. This is the God that I want to worship. And because Christ chose you, you can plan on facing three and even up to five phases of increasing hostility from the world. They hate your Savior. And they hate your election that he gave to you. If you're going to defeat hatred, it will come by way, brothers and sisters, of fully embracing your election in Christ. It is not something that you did. Well, you can turn back to John 15. Turn back there in your Bibles. We need to consider the second question of our text this morning. How does Christ relate to the world? How does Christ relate to the world? In our text in John 15, we've already seen that the world hated Christ first. We saw that the world was persecuting Christ and that the world rejected Christ. But if you notice in each of those verses down to 21, all you're seeing is that word over and over again, you. This is about you, you, the disciples. It's about you. But next in the text, Jesus takes us into two pairs of possessions belonging to the world, which define their relationship to him. And Jesus wants to know, let the disciples know not only how the world relates to them, but how the world relates to him. And so we need to ask this question, how does Christ relate to the world? And he tells us these two pairs of possessions belonging to the world. Two pair, right? Two over here, two over there. It's not poke or anything, it's just two pair. Verse 22 through 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Well, first, when we're dealing with this particular text, I want to address this idea of sinlessness. Is sinlessness in view in this text? Absolutely not. Sinlessness is not an issue here. 
Jesus makes these comments for the express purpose of saying that his coming has sealed these men in their sin. It is really a comment on the incredible degree of sin that is the rejection of the Messiah. His coming, his speaking, and his miracles. John MacArthur says, The Lord was not speaking here of sin in general, but rather of the specific sin of willfully rejecting him in the face of full revelation. That is the most serious sin of all, because it is the only one that is not forgivable. It is not forgivable because it is a direct denial of the person of the Holy Spirit. This is a blasphemous thought, according to Matthew 12, 31 and 32, when Jesus spoke about this. Attributing the deeds of the Holy Spirit done through Christ to the work of Satan, this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and is unforgivable, and that's what these men have done. MacArthur goes on to say, total rejection in the face of total revelation is unforgivable since there is nothing left for God to show such people. There's nothing left to show you. It's unforgivable. And so we see then the first of a pair of possessions belonging to the world, which define their relationship to Jesus is this. They have sin. They have it. They have sin. And they have no excuse. The world in their hatred owns these two things. They own sin and they own no excuse. Christ says, I have come and I did speak. And as a result of their rejection of me, they have sin and they have no excuse, no pretense, no motive, no cover, no explanation. Think about it for a second. Satan's words of deception in the garden were sufficient influence to humanity in those perfect conditions to pull them into total depravity, right? Satan's influence. He spoke to them, pulled them into total depravity. So shouldn't it be the case that Jesus speaking words of truth would have sufficient influence to pull men into righteousness? Out from under the curse of God? The answer to that is no. Why? Because of the size and the magnitude and the scope of spiritual death. Remember, spiritual death is the curse of God. His wrath and judgment on men. You get a little bit of a chance to see this if you've ever spoken to or talked with someone who's drunk or a drug addict or a crazed gunman or a power-hungry politician. They are under such a powerful influence that the only means of intervention is spiritual and absolutely supernatural. And only the grace of God can open up their eyes. But it also requires obedience from us, does it not? What is is required of us in our obedience to anyone in this world? Preach Christ crucified. The message doesn't stop going forward. It's the only way to open blind eyes. It is the method that God uses. He's pleased to send us to be the obedient ones. And what do you get when you go out in the street and preach Christ? You get punched in the face. Do they want your message? No, they do not. This is the first pair of possessions belonging to the world. They have sin and they have no excuse. Next, we see a second pair of possessions of the world that defines their relationship to Christ. This second set is this. They have seen and they have hated. They own these. You've seen enough. You have seen. And as a result, you have hatred. That's what you have. What did they see? They saw the supernatural. Jesus performed miracles and signs right in front of their faces. John's whole gospel is dedicated to showing you seven supernatural signs of Christ. That's what he wants to do. He says in John 20, 31, these things, these signs that I have written, I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The world saw Jesus. They saw the God-man in person here on earth, and they do not believe. They watched him feed 5,000 with fishes and loaves. They watched him make the paralytic to walk by speaking to him. They watched the blind man be given sight in John 9. They watched as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John even says in John 21, 25, there are also many other things, signs, miracles, which Jesus did, which... If they were written, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. 
That's how many signs Jesus did. They saw the miracles. They beheld the righteousness. They beheld perfection and innocence. And the people of the world that were in the absolute best seats, front row at raptors and warriors, the best seated people, when they saw, with the best opportunity to know and perceive who this man was, they weren't sitting up in the nosebleed sections. These Jews were right there front row. And what was their response to seeing perfection, miracles, signs, righteousness on display from a man? They hated him. What do you think? What do you think? If right now Jesus manifested himself right here in this world, all over this world, to every person alive on the world, what do you think? Right now, that if Jesus manifested himself in person to everyone alive, individually and simultaneously, right now, do you really think that the people that see Jesus right now, if he were to manifest himself, do you think that they would believe? If you think that they do, you're not thinking like God. God knows that the only way for humanity to overcome spiritual death is for God to act first in the heart of the man To give spiritual life. If this was just a matter of seeing Jesus physically. The demons would be saved. But they are not. Which of you put God under obligation to save you? How many of us are the wise. And the mighty. And the noble. Or do you still presume to have the power over spiritual death. That belongs to no man. And you think you saved yourself? No chance. There are two groups in this world. The chosen. I don't want to do that to you. The chosen and the unregenerate. (laughs) There are two groups. That's it. All have seen and all of you. You've all seen and you've all hated. That's all of us. That's all of us outside this world. This whole world, everybody, all have seen and hated. That's all of us. That's one group. But then, there are the chosen out of the world by God. That's this group. Do you see the two groups? Us and them. He made it this way. This is the way that he wants it. I'm not perfect. I'm just preaching his word to you. This is what his word says. And I got to tell you, I live a life just so filled with hope. And joy and promise. Because these truths are so buried deep into my heart. I know who saved me. And that's what I want for you as well. To know and have the joy. The abiding joy and confidence. That this is the only way. Unless you're so smart that you come up with something different. And so we know the battle lines are drawn. And we know that God has a chosen race. A holy nation. A people for his own possession who will face increased hostility from the world because of their projection of the name of Christ and because of the hatred of the unbelievers. Now, when I say the hatred of the unbelievers, and we're drawing this dichotomy, just real quick, stepping aside from my notes, do I hate those those unbelievers that hate me? Do I hate them? What does God call us to do? What is the act of going out and preaching to them and getting punched in the face? That is an act of love. We have so much love in this community that it only makes sense that it just bubbles up so much out of us that we have to go and tell someone else this message because it's the only message that saves. So you say, I'm chosen, but Oliver, am I going to get beat up? Yes, maybe. Yes, you will. But then you ask, is there something more that I can hold on to that I may endure the hatred, the rejections, and the beatings? Well, I'm glad that question was on your heart. Yes, I'm I'm happy to answer that for you. Yes, there are. There's more. I told you that there were three doctrines to defeat hate. I want to give you the other two. These other two doctrines you need to hold on to. They're so precious to you. I gave you the doctrine of election. That's right there in the text. I'm going to give you next the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the second doctrine that you need to hold on to that's so precious to you. Hold on to the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. You must know and believe that the master has bought you, that the master of all life, that the creator of the universe bought you. And it is he who is holding you through all of life's hatred, that this man, this one is actually God. 
and he defeated death. And he's taking you to eternal glory to defeat death with him as well. This is Jesus' declaration of deity again in the statement in 1523. You see in the text, 1523, Jesus says, He who hates me hates my father also. This comment of Christ speaks directly to his equality with God. And this is another proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. For believers in Jesus Christ, this is glorious news, an incredible treasure, and actually an important and profound central truth of our faith. And then finally, the third doctrine from the text that defeats hate. The third doctrine from the text that defeats I gave you election. I gave you the deity of Christ. I want you to have as well from this text today, sovereignty. You need to understand the doctrine of sovereignty. I know, personally, I know the truth of Romans 8.28. Do you know the truth of Romans 8.28? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. I know that truth. Do you? I'm not asking if you know this intellectually. Anybody can just nod their head at me now and say, Oh, yeah, 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 God's in control, yeah. I'm not asking about it intellectually. I'm asking you, do you know this personally? Do you know the truth of Romans 8.28 experientially? Has God proven this to you? What does it mean? It means that God is sovereign over all the affairs of man. It means that he knows everything before anything happened. Sovereignty is is, is the sweet doctrine that allows the song to flow from your lips that says, it is well with my soul. When you know sovereignty, verse 18, God knew that the world would hate Jesus. That was not a surprise for him. He used it to get Jesus on the cross. Verse 19, God knew exactly the names of all the chosen of all time that he would elect to be in Christ. And God knew that the world would hate believers. And he knew that he would need to share the hope of all of these doctrines with believers so that they could endure. And then verse verse 25. Look at 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. This goes back to Psalm 69. Who wrote their law? A bunch of men did. You're right. Who wrote their law? God wrote their law. God had David write these words over a thousand years before Jesus quotes them here. And let me ask you this question. What do you call it when God chooses the king of Israel, David, who then foreshadows the words of his perfect and eternal son, Jesus, who will reign on David's throne forever? What do you call it when something like that happens? Oh, that's chance. That's coincidence. That's a lucky day. No, you call that sovereignty. When God can purpose those words in a man's heart a thousand years before that man's promised perfect son would show up on the scene and reign forever. Why is it so important to know that God is sovereign, that he knows all things? It it is this, it's because if he doesn't know all things, then maybe he doesn't know that God will die someday. If he doesn't know all things, maybe evil will win. Maybe the crazy among us will never be stopped. Maybe hatred and crazy will only go on forever. If God doesn't know about hatred and wickedness, if he doesn't know about workplace active shooter situations and school shootings, if God doesn't know about the sexual revolutionaries that are trampling all over what this nation has stood for for years, but let alone what the word of God says when it comes to gender, and identity, taking their doctrines and their ideas down into the elementary school and trying to push them off onto your kids so that they can choose to be boy or girl? If God doesn't know that those circumstances of our life are happening now, if he doesn't know that, then he is not a God worthy of worship. But God does know that. He knows all about the active school shooters. He knows all about the sexual revolutionaries. God does know. The devil is his devil. The wicked world system is his wicked world system. He's in charge and he is in total control. And if if he has given this world over to Satan for a period of time to test his elect and to prove his power through his saints to build a church 
in the face of the worst that Satan has to offer, then I say, so be it. God will win. His record is perfection. He is totally sovereign over all of creation. For this reason, in the doctrine of sovereignty, you can have in your life great hope and joy and peace and rest, regardless of the circumstances that befall you week by week. How important is the doctrine of truth and sovereignty to you? How important are all these doctrinal truths to you? What are the chances that you needed this week to be reminded of the sovereignty of God again today? What, are the, what circumstances seemed overwhelming to you in this past week? Was your child injured at school? Was there family tension and drama? Someone on the phone with you that said some really hurtful words. Are the finances in your life tight? Money's just not there. Did you lose a coworker or a loved one to the gunfire of a madman on Friday? The world is filled with hate, first for Christ and next for believers. But that matters for nothing in light of knowing these three doctrines. If we know that we are the chosen of God, if we know that Jesus Christ is God, and if we understand and know the sovereignty of God, this is the message for the disciples on this night of glory and the reason why, at least for now, there is hate in glory. Will it always be that way? No. God said in this word that he will crush all the hatred and perfectly punish all the wicked. And there's a day of glory awaiting every one of us whose hope is in Christ, who are the born again, those who are spirit-filled, God's elect, his children. That's us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in, in light of the Events of this past week, it just really dawns on us the, the wickedness and the hatred that is in humanity. It is sobering to understand how much hate and how much wickedness fills this world. We really don't have to look too far, though, Lord. Your word causes us to even look into our own heart and to see the residual wickedness of our flesh that still abides on us. Hatred is everywhere. But through the amazing grace that you've shown to us, you are calling a group of people to yourself to bring you glory. What an amazing thing that you saved any one of us. What an absolute treasure to us. We are yours. We're your children. We respond to this message by saying, amen, Lord. Amen for election. Amen for Christ as God. And amen to know that your hand of sovereignty and providence is even affecting us and touching us today. Thank you for drawing us in here together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We praise you, Lord, for your work of sovereignty, for your power to elect, and for your work in raising a church that will bring you glory. Let us do that for you. Let us respond in love and obedience and joy to you and give you the glory you deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.